Welcome to Inside the Hut. I'm your host, Brooke Pollock, founder of Hut Capital. Inside the Hut is a podcast that talks with leading blockchain venture capital investors to dive deep into their firm, strategy, and approach to a complex space at the forefront of innovation. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and other podcast players or on our website at www.hutcapital.com. The content of each episode of Inside the Hut is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Hut Capital fund. Please note that Hut Capital and its affiliates may also maintain or be considering investments in or related to the companies, funds, assets, or strategies discussed in the podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments and related disclosures, please see www.hutcapital.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. Really excited to have with us this week, Suna Amaz, founder of Volt Capital. So thanks so much for joining us, Suna. Thanks for having me. All right. So get us started, we'd love just to hear about your history, an introduction to yourself, your background, and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I initially got into crypto back before, I mean, the Ethereum yellow paper. At the time, it was really only Bitcoin and Dogecoin. I remember throwing hackathons while I was at the University of Michigan. And whenever we put projects together, we'd always accept payment in Bitcoin or Dogecoin because it was fun. Um, Little did we know the massive geopolitical consequences or impact that crypto would have, not to mention its effects on game theory and applications of game theory, cryptography, like all these incredibly nuanced and interesting disciplines. But for us, it was fun. And oftentimes, that's how great new paradigm shifts or movements start. I then joined a data AI company called Alation. I was the 20th hire there, scaled it from a $9 million company to a $2 billion company. So I got a lot of operating experience while I was at Alation. And I had the itch to start my own company. So I started a company called Token Daily. Bear market hit. We pivoted that to a general tech company called OnDeck. I hired in David Booth, who led product dev and biz dev at CoinList. It's now a Series B company. And at the time, I took a look around what I wanted to do. And it was not run a general tech company. It really felt like focusing on telecom when Wi-Fi or internet was taking off. And I wanted to stay laser focused on crypto. So I noticed there was a huge gap in the market in the crypto VC landscape where there weren't really many crypto investors that also operated or founded companies that had reached some level of success, whether it be post-Series A, Series B, acquisitions. I mean, it was really like Chris Dixon, Jesse Walden from Variant, Fred Ursum, and me. I started pitching this idea of a firm that was founded by founders who have scaled companies, sold companies, and really been on the other side of the table to help founders in ways that really added value instead of kind of going through the motions and doing what sounded right. And it's so far really proven to move the needle for a lot of the founders that we've worked with. Oftentimes, I feel like we're an extension of the team and we can get more into Volt Capital later, but that's really the genesis of how I got started in crypto and what we're up to today. Awesome. Yeah, I remember the Token Daily newsletter from back in the day. I always enjoyed that. So it's a nice blast from the past there. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the top newsletters in crypto. The amount of mindshare we had, the quality of our readership was, gosh, if you invested in those readers, it was an incredible, incredible reader base. Yeah, absolutely. So help us better understand Volt Capital, just kind of a quick history of the firm, what it looks like today and the high level on the strategy. 
We are in the middle of deploying fund two right now. Uh, Volt Capital is, our first fund was about 10 and a half million. Second fund was roughly 50. And our strategy has remained the same from when we started, really. We've always been generalists in crypto. We think that crypto itself is niche enough to not focus within one specific vertical. Oftentimes that adds blinders to what's in the periphery. We really are in crypto right now, opening up the adjacent possible of what new markets can this unlock? What are the ways that crypto can really touch all these other verticals in tech in general? And we are so early on that for us, it never made sense to zero in on one specific niche within crypto. And that remains true today. We've seen a lot of our theses play out in terms of dev tooling, marketplaces, some consumer plays that I'm sure we'll get into later on. And our strategy has only shifted in that we write bigger checks now and we're putting more capital behind the founders that we believe in. What stage do you guys like to invest at? Pre-seed, seed, and I often like to throw in very reasonably priced Series A's. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best kind. How large is the firm in terms of team? There's seven of us. So before getting more into strategy and what you guys are excited about, so if I go to the website, there's also a link to Volt Labs. What is that? So crypto investing is a little different than general tech investing in that having a real technical edge should be table stakes for crypto funds. And that's by virtue, by nature of how technically demanding or the technical heavy lift that a lot of these projects need. So what we do at a high level labs is we walk through architecture design, mechanism design, security we essentially test potential exploits. We help on the security side for protocols and teams, thinking through edge cases that they probably haven't thought of, and also staking validating where it's relevant for our portfolio companies. And we run really efficient algorithms and scripts. When we were really in the early days, we were competing against, like, we were like top 10 validators, competing against like Figment and all these other stakers and validators that actually raised massive amounts of money. And we had initially bootstrapped it to start. So it was a fantastic effort to really get in the weeds of what's required from a technical perspective to make these networks work. And that gave us a differentiated edge and a unique point of view around what mechanisms were optimal for protocol design, for incentivizing users, and for deploying test nets and transitioning from testnet to mainnet. That's really interesting. And have you found that running Volt Labs has helped you guys to maybe find deals you wouldn't have otherwise to assess deals in a different way than you'd be able to if you didn't have that? Absolutely. So in two ways. One, it allows us to penetrate the developer community more and similar to in real estate where they say location, location, location. In crypto and in VC, it's developers, 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 or like founders, founder, founders. And that really is our wedge into that kind of community. And then secondly is not only does it help you source, but also helps you win deals. So when you go into these conversations where it's you against another fund, if you have the technical ability to support, that's just another differentiator, another value add you can add for the portfolios, particularly when you've seen what's failed and can help them avoid an existential risk like that, it really moves the needle for these founders. And if anyone's listening that is a research engineer, we're hiring right now for Volt Labs. So feel free to apply by submitting your resume to me at Suna at Volt.Capital. All right. So kind of stepping back a bit on the strategy and, and what you guys are interested in. So 
You mentioned you guys are generalist focused across crypto, but within the space today, are there certain focus areas you guys are most excited about? Where are you spending the most time at the moment? We still say pretty opportunistic. So it's important to have theses as a North Star, and that can help guide your decisions. But ultimately, you want to let the founders tell you or let you know where the future is going. And then it's on you to decide whether or not you believe the vision of the world that they're painting five, six years out based on what they're building. We still remain open to ideas from anywhere. We try to go where investors aren't around the hoop to stay not consensus, to stay more independent. One framework that I found really helpful is to look at flashes in the pan, previous cycles that crashed so hard, people wrote them off to relevancy or are now frowned upon in polite society. And let me explain some examples. So before Uniswap, AMMs categorically were this, right? Remember Bancor in the days before that? CryptoKitties with NFTs, once they crash. We used to run a crystal ball post for Dogen Daily. I don't know if you remember those where we would ask certain members of the community where they felt the space was going. And the year after CryptoKitties crashed, I think only one of 30 or 40 people that we asked to do the predictions for the next year said NFTs were going to be a thing. It was largely focused on DeFi, dev tooling. It was everything but NFTs. It was like DeFi on Bitcoin or ZK, but the silence was deafening in that regard that so few people actually pointed out NFTs. And then NFTs came back with a raging kind of energy or force the next cycle. And you see this happen over and over again. It's like these flashes in the pan that are then written off. So then the question becomes, what is that for this cycle? And one of them could be some version, when I think about things that were written off that had done really well and people completely discount today, one of them on the gaming side, at least, could very well be play to earn, but in a different way. It could be play and earn. So we're starting to see a resurgence of companies and titles and gaming studios building in this direction, even though a lot of the space is largely written off play to earn. There's different models that people are experimenting with now. A lot of crypto implementations that are going to help products and companies in a world where AI is creating a lot of abundance of content and information that you can't prove. Seeing a lot of companies building in that direction. Just think about the tailwinds going on in the macro. And for us, still remains really important to us. At a high level, we let the founders guide us where we're going. There's some interesting tailwinds, what we're following. And also, there were flashes in the pan that will probably be realized in the robustness of time. But the last piece, really, for us as a fund, and I want to make sure that we get this because I think founders often think of consumer funds or infra funds, is that we do both. We believe in infra and consumer creating this virtuous cycle. So when you have better info projects, that leads to better consumer experiences, which unlocks more consumer demand, which causes more consumer apps to build, which need better infra or more info projects. And so this creates this virtual cycle. So I will say if there's one way to categorize us cleanly about what we're really focused on, I would say infra consumer and how those both charge each other. Awesome. So a follow-up question on that, but before asking there, you mentioned one area that you've seen kind of written off, so to speak, was play to earn, but that the play and earn category may be interesting rise from the ashes. But what's the difference there? Play to earn versus play and earn. Can you clarify that? 
Yeah. So play to earn, the mechanism really is you are only doing this action to receive a payment to then be able to unlock more payments. It's purely financially driven and can lead to farming behaviors. Play and earn. It's the earning happens as an afterthought. So there are ways to implement this where it's one, the earning part isn't a guarantee. So there's another system within the game that has more value and you might get an NFT that ends up having real world value through the game. There's a more of a randomness factor around the earning. It isn't a pure input output, which is what we've seen oftentimes lead to farming behavior. I don't want to give away some of the models that are experimented on right now because we did just invest in a company that <laughs> is building a pretty novel play and earn model. But I would think in terms of randomness, in terms of what are ways that a user joins for the love of the game and the earning is the sweetener, the cherry on top versus the main incentive mechanism. Awesome. Yeah, I won't share the secret sauce today. So that sounds good. So to your point around kind of infrastructure and consumer, so we can go to your, well, I should say Volt Capital's Twitter page, get a pretty good sense of what you guys have done recently in terms of announced deals. So I'm just going to list a few off here, but you know, we got Sphinx and the DevOps side, Pixels and the consumer side, Hyperline, which advertises a Web3 data lake, Gevolute related to ZK proofs, Cartridge, which is on-chain gaming, Spearbit, which advertises as a decentralized network of security experts. So that's kind of what you described, right? It's a mix of infrastructure, maybe tooling, security, consumer. I know you guys have been active in the NFT category as well in the past. So mix of infrastructure and consumer. How do you actually make sure you understand those well, like investing in a consumer app versus some more technically oriented infrastructure project, I would imagine are very different. So how do you make sure that you actually can diligence each well? That's an excellent question. And that's something I think very deeply about when hiring and building out the team. So one failure mode for funds is building redundancy in the team where you have, think about basketball teams or soccer teams. You don't have a team filled of everyone in the same position. And that kind of framework should be applied to your teams. So getting people who are edgy or pointy in one direction, like domain experts in one direction, and can be weak in every other direction, that's fine. Their domain experts in one dimension is all that matters. So double down on their strengths versus trying to round out their weaknesses and hire for each of those. So what we've done is we have hired folks who are visibly focused on the intense MEV DeFi side of crypto, and that's what they own. We have folks that focus on consumer NFTs because there's a lot of spillover there, and that's what they own. So everyone owns their own niche. Now, sometimes it helps to have a complementary interest, or there's just an organic or natural inclination to keep abreast of what's going on somewhere else. And so the structure we have is something similar to declared majors and minors. So something similar to college, where like, you know, this is your focus area, but you also spend a little bit of time here and that can help inform or help volley ideas with teammates. But really, 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 in order to build a firm that is investing across all these verticals in crypto, you have to avoid major failure mode of funds, which is do not hire, avoid redundancy within the team, have people own their own niches and become domain experts, and the rest takes care of itself. Makes a ton of sense. And you personally, as you mentioned in your introduction, you're a former, I guess you'd call like Web2 dev. You worked at Alation. I'm curious to your thoughts on more of the developer experience in crypto today and how that compares to being a developer in Web2. Is that a really big gap? And what does that look like, assuming it's probably not the exact same as an investment opportunity as well within Web3? It's a little different to compare the developer experience across Web2 and Web3 by nature of what Web3 products largely are, particularly in InfraSide, versus what the lion's share of Web2 projects are these days. 
Web2 typically builds higher up in the infra stack, like on the app level. And so you'll find that a lot of the heavy lift has been abstracted away for a lot of these devs. And the innovation is in the use case, or it's more in the front end or the higher level kind of value accrual or higher level in tech stack. If you look at a lot of crypto companies, the differentiator, the innovation, all of that's actually in the architecture of the backend that you aren't simply abstracting away. It's actually in the design of the backend. And so by nature of the heavy lift and by nature of what the actual differentiator is for a lot of these projects, you just simply can't abstract a lot of these away with in ways that you can with Web2. So to start, they're massively different. But when you look at Web3 dev tooling or crypto dev tooling over time, it's gone immensely better. You just think about the people starting to code in 2017 or trying to contribute to the Ethereum ecosystem, or not even to mention Bitcoin ecosystem. There were no libraries, security, fuzzing, testing. All these had to be done from scratch, very manual. There was a lot of friction to get started. And what that inadvertently caused was a filtering out of developers who didn't have pretty heavy or serious backend experience. But now that we've created a lot of these dev tools that have streamlined the experience. They haven't sucked up all the air in the room. There's still a long ways to go in terms of liquidity fragmentation, particularly when you look at modular, the modular thesis playing out, roll-ups, you see all these different pockets of liquidity that people can tap into. There's still a lot to be built on the dev tooling side that accommodate these new structures and new ecosystems or ways of developing. But it is night and day versus where we started. So that's allowed more higher level front end devs to enter the ecosystem, enter the fold and contribute. So it's kind of opened the floodgates that way where there are just net more developers because it's net easier to get started. And there isn't as large an activation energy, but we still have a long way to go in terms of dev tools that can be built out in the crypto ecosystem, everything from like better security tools to better ways to close a gap for liquidity fragmentation and deploying across different ecosystems. And is that then putting on your investor hat, is that a category that you're pretty interested in from a deployment perspective? Obviously, you just invested in a DevOps platform, Sphinx, but more broadly around dev tooling as well. Yeah, dev tooling is absolutely something that we still invest in. I will say we believe we have a lot of the winners in our, in our portfolio, but we're still looking for you know, what's the verse sell of crypto going to look like. So there's still potential for those kinds of investments and opportunities for sure. Okay, cool. So kind of switching topics a bit, more of a high level question. Curious for your thoughts on the ETH for Soul ecosystems from a venture perspective. And you're building a portfolio as a venture fund. How do you think about your ecosystem exposure within the portfolio? Do you think about it like, hey, I want to have half my portfolio building on Ethereum and half of building a salon and figure I'm just totally making up those numbers and ecosystems. But do you think about it that way at all? Or is it totally like bottoms up to your point? You're like, who are the best founders? What are they building? How do they see the future and let them drive in that way? Yeah. So it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. We have never set out with the expectation of saying like, all right, we're going to have like 25% of our projects in the Ethereum ecosystem and 20% in Solana and 5% in Bitcoin. That's just, I believe, a losing strategy in terms of how to invest as an ecosystem first. The one exception I'll make, and we did do this during Solana's crash, is post-FTX. Obviously, there was a severe overcorrection in Solana's price. And we immediately talked to all of our founders building Solana and asked them what their plan was, if they wanted to move multi-chain, move to entirely different ecosystems. And every single one we talked to didn't flinch or bat an eye. They were like, no, we are all in on Solana. We're going to continue building Solana. Nothing has changed for us. And... After getting enough of those answers, we realized that the market would probably catch up 
to what founder sentiment was eventually and took advantage of the opportunity and made quite a few Solana investments. Back when Solana was like still at the $10 range, we invested in Lulo, for instance, and some others. So the one exception I'll say where it does make sense to be ecosystem conscious is when there's been a severe correction in one ecosystem that you know is just a temporary correction and will recover is to go source the founders that are building that ecosystem because it just filters itself. They really filter for themselves out, self-selects for the founders that are really going to build and care about this. And they're going to be able to capture all the users that stayed and ride the wave when the markets come back. Other than that, we don't look at ecosystems at all. It truly is the founder. And it's the founder giving us a story about why they're deciding to take the ecosystem approach they are. So are they starting multi-chain? Are they starting in Solana? Are they starting Ethereum or some other Cosmos ecosystem, whatever? Do they have a strong thesis for why they're building in this direction? And if we buy the logic and think it's coherent, that's good enough for us. And the reason it's battle-tested and they can answer everything that we challenge them with. And the reason that's important is because if you look at the development of these apps over time and platforms over time, as they hit certain scale, a lot of them are migrating anyway to different ecosystems. So a lot of where they started isn't necessarily where they plan to end or plan to be. And that changes over time. So investing on the virtue of the ecosystem they're building on is such a malleable, dynamic thing. But the thing that remains is the framework they use to evaluate ecosystems. So filtering for that, understanding that thoroughly in the earliest stages is all that matters, and then letting them run and do their thing. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I guess probably when your portfolio company's Magic Eden, Eden's a good example of that, where they start in Solana. They, I think they're big in Bitcoin these days. I think they're launching on Ethereum soon as well, so are much broader than where they started in that sense. And then you have others like Lulo that was building when Solana dropped down to $8. And we asked them if they were playing a good multi-chain, how they were going to hedge a Solana. They were like, we're staying on Solana. They were like all in. So even though they started on Solana and had the optionality at that time, they could have stayed. So it really is different strikes for different folks. But the most important thing is that you buy the framework and the logic behind their decisions. And you mentioned that you spoke to a lot of founders in Solana ecosystem. I assume it was post-FTX collapse when sentiment was quite different than it is today from a negative perspective. What gave them the confidence to stay with the ship, so to speak, and not switch ecosystems? What were you hearing from them? It was one, just the belief that this was the best chain for them, for what they were doing. They net could not do this on another chain because of latency, because of fees, because of whatever it may be. And then secondly, each other. So other Solana founders motivating other Solana founders to stay in the ecosystem, hold the fort down until market winds changed. And that kind of the thousand true fans, like loyal following, almost cult-like, and I mean that in the best way possible, all organizations that have ever made an impact, negative or positive, have always been cults on a global scale. And that is very, very hard to bet against. So one thing I'm curious about, so you guys raised your second fund, it was like late 21, early 22, really right at the height of the market. One thing that stands out from my perspective is you were very patient in deploying capital rather than quickly deploying in a high valuation market. So, you know, something that's definitely easier said than done, but help me get inside your mind there. I want to better understand the thought process that led you to that approach and to actually be able to remain patient in hopes of better valuations. It definitely was not easy. And I don't think people understand why it's not easy. So some of it is peers are sending you deals. 
And they're like, this is amazing. This is going to be the next Bitcoin, Solana, whatever. This is the real deal. And you have to sit and just be like, sorry, we're not deploying right now. This valuation does not make sense for our mandate. And it is hard when other people think this is the opportunity of the year or of the vintage. And that's one part of it. But the other part of it is your LPs asking you like, Hey, it seems like you're deploying pretty slowly. Like, what's in the market? Is crypto dead? It's a lot of this questioning of why aren't you deploying? And my answer consistently was we are not going to look busy. We're not going to invest in companies just to look busy. We are only going to invest if we genuinely believe this is a great company and this is the right entry price. It's hard to do that with your stakeholders. And we had a lot of those conversations and it ended up being the right thing to do because valuations dropped and we expected that. But what we didn't index on as much, it was validating to see and a little surprising, was two things. One, the quality of founders that entered the space during the bear market, just a completely different breed than the mercenaries that entered during the bull market. And then the other part that's actually surprising was time diversity and how the narrative shifted over time just with the dust selling over FTX. So you saw new categories starting to have flags planted, things people wrote off in the midst of the crash, a V2 come about. There's going to be different in this cycle. We learned from our mistakes. We'll be more robust in this way. And so the part people really don't account for in the waiting game is, yeah, prices will likely drop through the bear market, but it's also the time diversity in the narratives that play out. And you get to give your LPs exposure to that kind of that reset, those new narratives, the early innings. And I would urge every fund manager to do that. It's fine if you raise capital and call it like six months later and start deploying, just trust your gut around prices, around founder quality, and around the heterogeneity of the narratives that you're seeing in the ecosystem. So if the goal was to be patient, wait for better valuations, to your point, the founder quality tends to pick up during the bear market as well. How do you feel about that decision today? How is the environment for pre-seed and seed stage investing now versus, let's say, two years ago when you're starting out of fund two? And I guess one might assume that you're now more actively deploying given the stated strategy, but help me better understand that. The last six months have been the most active for our fund. And in the earliest innings, so sure, there are the larger, frothier companies that are going out to raise right now. 600 million, 700 million that are building off the momentum of Bitcoin hitting 50K. But for pre seed and seed, they're pretty insulated. We just did a company at $9.5 million valuation. Like we're seeing 15, 20. We're really seeing things past the $30 million range on the pre seed side as much. And it's pretty insulated. I would say growth, though, like the growth stage companies and protocols is where you're seeing these inflated valuations. You definitely, to your point, like you've seen Bitcoin and just liquid assets more generally increased pretty significantly in the past three or four months. So it sounds like you haven't seen that have a major impact in terms of pre-seed and seed stage valuations, at least so far? No, not for the first rounds. So you guys obviously were pretty independent thinking in terms of your patience and pacing, but more broadly, how do you make sure you're staying independent and deciding for yourself where you have conviction instead of just following narratives in a space where you definitely see a lot of that? The easiest way to do it is to index on something that we call in the fund net newness. So the idea is oftentimes when something's unfamiliar to us or net new, the default human condition is to shy away from it or to lean out. But training yourself to get curious and lean in when something's unfamiliar is a muscle to train. And we identify it as net newness and indexing on net newness. And if we haven't seen this before, it's something that we should actually be leaning into harder. 
and taking more seriously. Then the opposite side of that, the opposite side of net newness, which is incrementalism. And this is kind of another failure mode that I've seen in VC. Peter Thiel has talked about this in the past too. It's just this idea of we've seen the Uber model work. So now we're going to do Uber for X or Airbnb for Y. And it's a very safe way to invest. And venture really takes the venture out of venture capital. At that point, you're just investing in proven models instead of really indexing for that asymmetry. And so indexing and focusing on net newness is a huge way that we're able to remain independent and non-consensus in this market. Honestly, it largely boils down to that. The only other thing I can think of is when others pass on an opportunity is to ask yourself whether or not you buy their arguments against the investment or the company. And oftentimes you'll find that other investors don't fully understand the product even or what the vision is that the founder has. And that's your opportunity to lean in when others are fearful. Quick question on the strategy side of things, but does Volt invest in liquid assets or is it just early stage? privates? We have a small allocation to liquids and our focus is venture, which largely is an equity instrument with token warrant these days anyways, industry standard. And the way we see it is that with every cycle, there's just less and less alpha in uh, liquid tokens, readily available tokens like Bitcoin East Solanas. And what you're really looking for are 30, 50, 100,000 Xs. And as crypto becomes more consensus, that those multiples are in the venture opportunities, not in the liquid opportunities. Do you guys have any certain geographic focus for the fund in terms of US, global or otherwise? We don't. So we're not selling RLPs on geographic exposure. We're selling them on best-in-class returns and best-in-class founders. Based on where developer activity is our, and based on where our deal flow is coming from, it's largely looking concentrated across. It's a patriot portfolio. So it's like largely concentrated in North America. We're seeing quite a bit in Europe, Asia, and other markets. But our goal isn't to make sure that we're getting exposure in every geographic place, but rather optimizing for best returns. In terms of your own location, you're based in San Francisco, or at least in the Bay Area. And we've definitely had some folks based in New York on recently telling us that New York is the center of crypto in the US these days. Curious what you're seeing from the SF perspective. I don't know if you would counter that or not, but kind of curious how you see the market in San Francisco these days for crypto. Totally. So for technical talent in general, SF remains unmatched, probably the best places to hire. SF is primarily focused on AI now. And a lot of that you can see in the number of founders, the opportunity set here. And a lot of the center of gravity of crypto has moved to New York. And in fact, we're opening up a New York office, as I shared. Congratulations. Thank you. And a lot of that has to do with where a lot of crypto founders are these days, other crypto investors, where we just see most of the movement for crypto. Crypto is pretty non-consensus now in SF. It's hard to come across as many happy hours or events or things going on outside of our research club or a couple other crypto recurring SF series. And I've actually been thinking about this deeply because I don't think it's only crypto. I think it's a lot of venture capital investing in the Valley. And I think there's a principal agent problem. So I haven't been around long enough to know if this has been a decades long trend, but my sense it is. And I think there's a principal agent problem where if you think about the first few funds in the Valley that took institutional capital, bank capital, whatever, and organized a small firm by a few renegades that really believed in this new internet thing and wanted to put money behind the best founders, it was only a few funds, really. It was the principles 
that were putting their own money and money they raised from the East Coast to work in these Silicon Valley companies. Now there are a lot more firms, a lot more investors, and there's a lot more bureaucracy within the firms themselves. There's junior investors, more senior investors, and the managing partners. And there's been this principal agent problem that's been introduced where a lot of the agents in venture capital in San Francisco or in Silicon Valley will typically have two-year tenures at these firms. And so their incentive, unlike the principal, which has 10-year returns and has a longer time horizon, their incentive really is to make momentum-based investments so they can show a track record of buzzy hot startups and then go on to the next better firm. And that's kind of led to this dynamic where it feels like there's a lot of investing looks like kids soccer now, where everyone's going where the ball already is versus where it's going to go. And it's very healthy to be in environments where that isn't the case. Makes sense. As someone who coached a kindergarten soccer team this past year, it's all too familiar. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's an easy solve for that either. So other than restructuring the funds and running more lean, agile teams where agents are incentivized to stay longer and realize longer time horizons, I really think that's the only way around it. You mentioned the Research Club. So at least that I'm aware of, you guys have a couple of events or event series that you organize and put on. The Research Club in San Francisco and then the P2P program. Can you just explain what those are and also why you do them? Yeah, absolutely. So Research Club and P2P are some of Volt Capital's programs that do two things. One, net positive for the community in a few ways that I'm going to jump into that also happen to be really advantageous for us as a fund. So Research Club is a Socratic seminar that was actually inspired by Michael Jordan's Homework Club series, as well as, I believe, Jordan from Pace, who also used to host a white paper reading series in 2017 or so. And what it is, is it's every three weeks, we'll invite top engineers, researchers, technically-minded folks, and people who just want to go deeper to discuss cutting-edge research or cutting-edge narratives and to challenge and dissect what the advantages are, what disadvantages are, things that we aren't thinking. There's a little bit of intellectual sparring, but really it's just net positive for everybody involved because everyone feels like they're more informed, they've gone deeper, and they have a better understanding of what they should design around or for. And it's led to, Research Club in particular, has led to people making adjustments in their papers, inspiring them to write research papers. For us, it's helped us actually find great founders who love the value that we've created through research programs. And then as a result, want us on the cap table to be plugged into a community like ours. And it helps keep really smart people in our orbit, which is always net positive. And then for P2P, that is a different flavor. So P2P, quite literally peer-to-peer, is this idea I had that podcasts are great and keynotes are great and panels are great. Oftentimes, people are saying the narratives they wish were true or very polished versions, but all the juicy stuff is off the record. And the tactics and the corner cutting or not corner cutting that companies had to do, all of that is in those are where the bodies are buried in companies that they're not going to talk about publicly. And so a lot of founders don't have access to that information. So what we try to do is create a very It's off the record. Nothing's recorded. Highly curated. We have over 100 companies apply. Typically, each time we run this, 150 companies apply. And then we pick the top 30. And we'll have experts or leaders or company founders that have built successful or scaled successful protocols um, or projects. And they 
present on one specific aspect of the protocol building or company building. So what people talk about everything from Genesis, quite literally from fundraising, from making your first core engineering hire, to thinking about a specific mechanism design. It really runs the gamut in terms of topics covered, but each of them is important for a different founder based on whatever vertical they're building in. And so they'll break out into small groups and we'll have workshop leaders walk through things that they necessarily wouldn't share in public that worked for them and wouldn't share in public, not because it's unsavory information, but because it's a bit of their secret sauce and they wouldn't want to publicize a payload. And it's a very high trust environment. Founders at the end of it feel like it completely changes the way that they approach a specific aspect of their business or a specific aspect of the protocol. And then recently we've added a demo day to our P2P. So of the 30 companies that are accepted, we pick the top five to 10 and have them present in a demo day. And those companies have gone on to raise from a lot of the blue chips in the Valley. I mean, we've invested in them, Paradigm and others. Okay, that's really cool. So I'd assume that for a venture firm, a key reason for putting on these events is meeting founders, meeting engineers, deal flow to find potential investments. Have you seen these events lead to specific investments that Volt Capital has made? So we've invested in quite a few, but the other piece to it is really just making sure that these events are high quality versus simply boondoggle. So we've had founders fly out to, oftentimes we'll host P2P on the heels of another larger crypto event. And we've had founders fly in just for the P2P event, the one day summit versus the entire crypto event. Because what we found was that a lot of these events were turning to boozing and schmoozing, which is great if you're fundraising, maybe if you're trying to recruit. But to carve out this day where it is high information density, you probably aren't going to get this anywhere else with this many people that are going to be able to directly move the needle for your company or protocol. And that's really powerful. So it's also been a great asset for the community. We've talked a lot about what you guys are interested in, how you operate. From a founder perspective, why do you find that folks want to work with Full Capital? A large part of it is the founder DNA. Everyone on our team has started a company, sold a company, scaled a company to Series B, in my instance. And it's very, very different when you have a partner on your cap table that's been on the other side of the table that knows what moves the needle on company building versus not. That also has the other virtue of building a company, particularly like the company we built, is we had both traditional tech investors and founders we worked with, as well as Web3 native ones. So a lot of the... Silicon Valley DNA of just business fundamentals that a lot of crypto founders are still ramping up to learn. We can provide that for them as well. So really, it's this idea of just having operator DNA and founder DNA where we can genuinely be like an extension of the team versus optimizing for things that really don't move the needle for the founder, but sound good to us. We know what actually matters versus what doesn't. I guess there's the helping out as a venture firm versus the illusion of being helpful, but... (laughs) traditional, like, it's the classic sending a link of the company's competitor and be like, have you seen this? <laughs> it's probably the worst least value add things that a venture investor can do. It's a meme for a reason. It's hilarious just how many investors do that. So one thing I love, if maybe you could highlight one or two of your portfolio companies or protocols, either ones that are recent investments that you can speak to, or could be ones that are existing portfolio investments that you're just really excited about, but would love to hear a little more deeply about one or two. Yeah, this is so difficult to do, Brooke. It's like asking your favorite child. Or <laughs> yeah, I feel you. <laughs> Truly, there's so many. Like from a recency perspective, what gets me excited equally 
about the company is also just the founders. Truly, you look at Timu from Gevulot, just the customer base he'd built out through his previous companies, the trust he has with all these existing players that are so excited to use Gevulot. They've figured something really interesting around enshrining a marketplace on the protocol level to do all these ZK proof aggregation, which has inspired a lot of other companies to try to follow suit. I think as Gevulot is only going to become more important over time, we're really excited about that company. Luke from Pixels, we usually don't do gaming titles, but Luke treats Pixels like a startup, not like a gaming title. He is constantly iterating, shipping on it. The Pixel users, Pixel gamers love Pixels game. We love it. We think it's so fun. And he's been very true to the retro Pixels aesthetic from day one, in spite of all the transformations the game has had over time. We look at Magic has been able to successfully capture Web 2 and Web 3 interests and really merge both the worlds. And Sean Lee had been a prior founder before, had a successful acquisition before starting Magic. You look at Nansen, Alex has done a tremendous job entering, penetrating a market that most people thought was saturated and rising to be one of the top tools in the data analytics space and augmenting that through AI and really leveraging his AI background. There's so many great companies I could talk about. Like, how much time do you have? I can't really go through <laughs> but really what gets me excited is not only the companies and what they're doing, and many of them like Yakoa, which tracks IP for a lot of these crypto companies that are also going to become more important as AI gets more important, more relevant, more ubiquitous. But it's not only the companies, it really is just the founders that really get us really excited to just have recurring one-on-ones with them and figure out what they're up to and how they're viewing the world. It's one of the best parts of the business, truly. Now, people ask us that question as well. It's a fund of funds. Which funds are you most excited about? And it's just such a hard question to answer. Where do I start? So uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks for bearing with me. All right. The most important question is the last one here. So if it weren't for working in tech, working in venture, what would you want to do for a living? I've thought about this before. And I think I'd be a writer. I think I'd be a writer or a professor. <laughs> and, and the reason is because I love reading, learning new ideas, synthesizing those ideas, and sharing in hopes of having an impact. And one vehicle to do that for me, gratefully, that's been also aligned from an incentive perspective is VC. But I realized that core motivation, if VC didn't exist, would be expressed through maybe writing or professorship, where this guiding, even on the student level, it's like guiding the future. It's synthesizing ideas and guiding the future in some way, either through your writing or through a classroom. Awesome. Yeah, that explains the Token Daily newsletter back in the day as well in terms of writing. So it makes a lot of sense. Cool. And where can people find you or Volt Capital online if they want to learn more? Volt Capital, our Twitter is V-O-L-T-C-A-P-I-T-A-L. And then my Twitter is Suna, S-O-O-N-A. And then if you want to email me, it's Suna at Volt.Capital. And please include those in the show notes. We are recruiting for research engineers and are always looking for great opportunities and founders to back. Awesome. We include that for sure. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. This is a really fun conversation. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much, Brooke. Always a pleasure. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. You can find this and other episodes on any podcast player or at our website, www.hutcapital.com.